On April 16th, 1846, James Francis Reed and several covered wagons left Springfield, Illinois, heading west for fame and fortune in California. Reed had been a very successful businessman in Illinois, and but had heard of opportunities in California, and his wife's health wasn't good, and he felt like the the ocean air would be better for her than there in the Midwest. And so they decided to head west with many other families. And Reed actually built a a custom, had a custom stagecoach or, or a covered wagon built. It was a two-story covered wagon and included spring-loaded seats and bunk beds. The rig was pulled by eight oxen. That's how big it was. Reed had recently read a book written by a man named Lansford Hastings titled The Beginner's Guide to Oregon and California. In the book, it described some new paths, some new routes to California that were supposed to be easier and save weeks. After several stops along the way, the wagon train made its uh, arrived in Laramie, Wyoming, while there, Reed happened to run into a friend of his from Illinois that was coming from California back to Illinois. And he talked, he just used the Hastings route. He said, don't use that route. He could barely make it by foot. You'll never make it by covered wagon. You need to take the alternate route. But the alternate route would have taken another three or four weeks. Reed ignored the advice. The wagon train continued west. They made it to Little Sandy River in Wyoming. It was the point of no return. They had to Go to the right, take the northern route, which would actually brought them through Washington and then south into California, or to continue and go down through uh, Utah and through the mountains of Nevada, between Nevada and California. The wagon train had picked up a number of uh, people by that time, and when they got to there, there was a, a massive split. The majority of the people t- decided to take the northern proven route. And Reed and his group decided to take the unproven Hastings route, thinking they were going to save weeks. They elected a new leader at that time, 20 wagons, 87 people. They elected a new leader of the wagon train, a man by the name of George Donner. They ended up having to cut a trail through the Wasatch Mountains in Utah. They got bogged down in the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Some of Reed's oxen actually wandered off because there was no water. They were way behind schedule. They were running low on supplies when they arrived at the Sierra Nevada Mountains in what is today Reno, Nevada. It was late October. They didn't want to wait till winter was over. They were determined to finish the last 600 miles of their trip. And on October 28th, they were up in the the Sierra Nevada mountains when a snowstorm came, dumped so much snow on them that they couldn't go forward, they couldn't go backward. They found a little lake there with a lot of trees. They were able to build a couple of small cabins, some lean-tos. They put up a tent, and the 87 people all huddled in two cabins, a couple of lean-tos, and a tent. They began eating their animals, their oxen that they were using to pull their wagons and mules that they were pulling wagons with. And on Thanksgiving Day, they killed the last of the animals that they had for food. More storms came, more snow fell. A couple of the men made it out on snowshoes to try to get to safety and bring supplies back. But the snowfall made it impossible for them to get back in. On December 15th, the first of their group starved to death. And over the next four months, just under half of the people would starve to death in those cabins. It wasn't until the end of April that the last of the Donner Party were rescued. The Donner Party was ill-prepared. For the harsh realities that faced them, they weren't prepared, they didn't have the supplies, they didn't have the equipment, they didn't have the shelter, they didn't have the knowledge, they didn't have a guide, but they chose to follow a trail that was unproven, that they had never been on, they didn't know where it would lead, and the tragic result was the death of 41 people. 
And the 46 that survived had to resort to cannibalism in order to do that. The passage in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35, Jesus warns would-be followers of the path that lays ahead. And he tells them, you need to be prepared for this path. It is not an easy route. It's going to be full of hardship, and you need to be prepared for that. And if you're not prepared, then don't go down that road. Jesus is perfectly clear that Being a disciple is not an invitation to a life of ease. It's not comfort. It's often sacrifice and suffering. This is not the case for most other rabbis and their disciples. The disciples of most other rabbis, all they had to do was show up and listen. They would receive lessons and they would apply those lessons if they wanted to, or if they didn't, they didn't. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear here that being His disciples require more than just showing up. Jesus will address the cost of being a disciple and the worthlessness of a benign disciple. He stops with, starts with the cost of being a disciple. Verse 25 says, Now large crowds were going along with them, and He turned and said to them, This is picking up the story that started back in chapter 9 of Jesus leaving Galilee and heading down south to Jerusalem for the final time. That's when He'll be crucified and all the encounters along the way there. Jesus has left the town He was in where He was invited to a Pharisee's house and uh, to a big dinner party and Jesus would address the issues there, the, the issues of pride in the guests and arrogance in the host. Jesus would end that meal with a parable of invited guests and basically telling all the audience that he was talking to, none of you people are going to make it into the marriage supper of the Lamb. You've been invited, but you've made excuses of why you can't come in. So the poor and the lame and the blind and the crippled, they're the ones that will be in the kingdom. They're the ones that will partake You yourselves will be left out. So large crowds are following him. They're intrigued by Jesus. They want to know what's going on. And Jesus is about to show them there's a big difference between one who is going along with Jesus and one who is a disciple of Jesus. It's one thing to follow Jesus personally from one place to another and watch what he does and listen to him teach and be amazed at his miracles. There's a totally different level of somebody who is a true follower of Jesus, a true disciple of Jesus. For many of them, they'd heard the stories and or they've heard about the miracles or they've watched the miracles take place and and for many of them Jesus was great entertainment. Let's see what he'll do next. Let's ask him to do some tricks. For others, he offers good principles to live by. It's chicken soup for every day. How do I live today? What do I do? They're treating him like any other rabbi, just giving good advice. They can take or leave. For others, just saying that they knew Jesus was enough. That was, hey, I know a celebrity. I know somebody that's well known throughout town. But being entertained by Jesus, or impressed by Jesus, or intrigued by Jesus or even influenced by Jesus, is not enough. That's not discipleship. For a true disciple, it's much more than that. There's, And to make it clear, there's no such thing as being a Christian without being a disciple. And there's no such thing as being a disciple without being a Christian. They are synonymous. So Jesus turns to them and speaks. He's about to spell out the cost. We are compelled to come to terms as we look at passages, this passage and ones like it, that there is a cost to being a disciple. There are costs and expectations that are required of a disciple. So verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So as we see, he's going to give us three requirements here in between verses 26 and 33 of the cost of being a disciple. And as we look at them, I think we're compelled to ask the questions that he addresses. And the first question is here, who will I choose? Who will I choose? He leads off the cost of being a disciple with a big one. There's a huge cost here. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you've probably heard, well, that Jesus is using hyperbole here, and there's a sense in that's true. Where Jesus is using hyperbole because it seems to us on some level that the command here is contradictory to other commands. For instance, Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged on the land and on which the Lord your God gives you. And it's a command that's reiterated in the New Testament. So we are to honor our parents. So Jesus says you need to hate your father and mother. That doesn't seem to jive with honoring our father and mother. Then hate your wife and your children. Well, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and their children. So, what does it mean? Well, it just means that your love for Jesus is to surpass. Well, it's actually more than that. Jesus uses a word, the word that is translated hate here is miseo, and it was used in rabbinical teachings to refer to preferential treatment. It's not animosity toward our family members. It's, it is indifference to one in preference for the other. Literally, indifference to one in preference for the other. It, to say, I love A and I hate B, is to say, I prefer A over B. If I have to choose between A and B, I choose A. It's the idea behind the relationship between Jacob and Leah. You might remember Jacob loved Rachel and and her dad said, that's fine, you got to work for me for seven years and you can have her. So he does, and on the wedding day, the Jacob pulls the veil back to kiss his bride and it's her older, not-so-attractive sister, Leah. Great. He has to work another seven years in order to have Rachel for his wife. So Genesis 29 tells us that Jacob loved Rachel, hated Leah. Jacob loved Rachel and hated Leah it does not mean that he despised Leah. It means he preferred Rachel over Leah. Leah was, or I mean, he preferred Rachel over Leah. Rachel was his favorite. The fact that he did not despise Leah is evident in the fact that they had seven children together. Oh, obviously there was at least a few times when he didn't despise Leah. He did love her, and we see that in the way he treated her even afterward. It's the same idea in Romans chapter 9, verses 13 and following. Just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice in God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, Jesus is, God is saying here in Romans, I will choose whom I choose. I have preferences. And he said, I preferred Jacob over Esau. That he hated Esau? No. You look at what God blessed Esau with when he and Jacob united. God uses the same terminology to show his preference in other places. Jesus said this in in chapter, Luke chapter 16, verse 13. You can turn there if you like. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So Jesus is not saying here you can't be a Christian and be wealthy. He's saying you're going to prefer one over the other. You're going to prefer God over money, or you're going to prefer money over God. 
He doesn't say, he's not saying here, you have to take a vow of poverty if you're going to be a disciple. If you're going to love me, you have to hate money. He's just saying you got to, it shows you where your heart is, where your preference is. A similar statement that Jesus gives to, to Luke 14.26 is in Matthew 10.37 and it argues for the idea of love less. Jesus said there, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy than me. He who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So you see the idea of loving more and loving less. The point that Jesus is making is, as one commentator put it, quote, family is not to become one's master. Only Jesus is to have that role. Love for him is to take precedence over all other loves, end quote. Even consider the way Jesus interacted with his own earthly family. Twelve years old, he's in Jerusalem with his parents for Passover. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 46 through 49, it says, His family left thinking they were with some cousins, and he wasn't. After three days, they, they came back, they found him. After three days in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you're looking for me? Do you not know that I am to be about my father's, or I would be in my father's house? Jesus is saying, this is where I'm supposed to be. In Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, Jesus is in a house preaching, and the house is so full that nobody could get in or out at that point in time. And his mother and his brother show up outside, and somebody tells him, Luke 8, verses 19 through 21, And his mother and his brothers came to him and were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus didn't despise his mother. We know that because one of the last things he did while hanging on the cross was to assure her her protection, her safety, her provision. He looks at his mother and and then John the disciple and said, Behold your son, behold your mother. But Jesus is showing there's a preference here. The preference is to do the will of the Father. Now some of you know what it means to have to make a choice between loving God or showing preference to your family. Some of you have had that, those conversations. Some of you have had to have those issues where there's a division in your family because of your decision to follow the Lord. I know that was true in my own family. As a young man in my early 20s, actually 19, I had to make, or 18, I had to make the choice to do what I believe God was leading me to do or disappoint my father. Lord willing, you'll never have to be in a position where you have to choose between your family and the Lord. Lord willing, God will allow you to bring your family along with you or they will just go along with you and you all follow the Lord together. Obviously, that's our desire and that's what we would wish. However, the statement of Jesus here is not ambiguous. If you find yourself in a position where you must choose to obey Christ and disappoint or be disapproved by your family, Jesus is saying, if you're a genuine disciple, you choose me. That preference for Christ even extends to one's own life. Not only do you have to hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Most people do not lack love for self. That is not a problem for most people. Like 99.9% of people. Our problem is the exact opposite. We have too much love for self. When it's the choice between self-exaltation or Jesus, choose Jesus. When it's the choice between self-satisfaction and Jesus, choose Jesus. 
When it's a choice between self-preservation and Jesus, choose Jesus. When it's a choice between self and anything that has to do with self and Jesus, choose Jesus. Jesus gave the strongest consequence for those who even choose their family over Him. He says, you cannot, He cannot be my disciple. Do you understand the harsh reality that Jesus is saying to the crowd and to us? If you don't have, if you don't prefer me over your entire family, you can't be my disciple. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't allowing for growth in the life of a follower. Or that the expectation is that at, at, at the moment of salvation, you automatically prefer him over everything else. But Jesus wants the crowd that are following him at that point and us by extension to know that the expectation is that we grow to that point where we prefer him over everything else. Now it's hard to tell a parent you've got to prefer God, you've got to prefer Christ over your own children. I understand how harsh that sounds. But is it really harsh to love Christ more than anything else? Not really. In fact, I would tell you parents, the best thing you can do for your children is to show that you love Christ more than anything else. I think that's the greatest lesson you can teach your children. You can teach them to read and write. You can teach them to spell. You can teach them to drive a car. You can teach them all those kinds of things. But if you don't teach them to love Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what else you taught them. Jesus wants the crowds to know that this is the expectation. This is the direction, the sanctification of your life is to be moving. And if you're not moving in the direction of a superior preference for the things of Christ, Jesus is saying... You are not my disciple. If you look at the trajectory of your life, and it is not moving towards a greater, deeper love for God and for His Son, Jesus is saying, you're not really my disciple. You can't be. It's an impossibility. There are costs and expectations required to be a disciple of Jesus. Who will you choose? If it comes down to it, you have to make the choice. Who do you choose? The next question is, how far will you go? How far will you go? Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the epitome of loving Jesus more than one's life. It doesn't get more severe than this. You can't, I cannot overemphasize the impact that such a statement would have had on the crowd that Jesus was speaking to at that time. When he says, unless you take up your cross and uh, whoever does not take up his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The common use of the cross in our day and age makes it almost impossible for us to understand the gravity of the statement that Jesus was making. The harsh reality that that original audience would have understood. The cross at that moment in time was not a religious symbol. It was not a piece of jewelry. It was not a decoration that hung on the walls of buildings or on set up on hills overlooking cities. When Jesus speaks of the cross, the first thing that people think of when He speaks of that is a gruesome instrument of torture and death. They think of the vilest criminals that they can think of, that they have ever heard of. Those are the people that go on crosses. 
hanging a cross on the wall at that time would be equivalent for you to hang a guillotine on the wall of your house or to hang a noose on your wall. It would have been offensive and it would have been seen as foolish. Crucifixions typically took place on the side of busy roads so that travelers could see what happens to criminals. It was a visual reminder of the cost. And they typically took place in the same spot that there were already holes dug for the the tall uh, vertical pieces and the criminals would typically carry the, the, the horizontal piece, the patabulum, through town as they went to the place where they were going to be crucified and the the ground would be stained with the blood of those who were crucified and the stench of death would be in the air and everybody would know that's what happens when you defy the Roman government. The Jews were very familiar with the sights and sounds of crucifixion, particularly around the city of Jerusalem. They would often add insult to injury by making you carry your cross to the place where you would die like carrying your own rope to your own hanging. The cross was intended to torture and dishonor the condemned person all along, prolonging the suffering and death for hours and hours and hours. Some people hung on the cross for 24 hours or more before dying of suffocation or being attacked by wild animals or having their eyes plucked out by birds or finally getting their legs broken so they would suffocate and die. Crucifixion was so violent, so humiliating, that no Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified by law. It was only reserved for the most vile criminal. The Romans called crucifixion the slave's punishment. Sixty years before Christ, the Roman statesman Cicero wrote, quote, Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of the Roman citizen, but even from our thoughts. End quote. First century historian Josephus called crucifixion, quote, the most wretched of deaths. End quote. Jesus said, unless you take up your cross and come after me, you can't be my disciple. Unless you're willing to suffer like that, you cannot be my disciple. Not only is Jesus telling his people, you need to be prepared to die, he is saying, you need to be willing to be accursed. The cross was not only a torture, torturous instrument of death, it was also a great symbol of shame. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, speaking of Jesus, fixing his eyes, or fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now I know in our day and age, if somebody said, curse you, It doesn't mean anything. Most of us don't believe in voodoo or magic spells or anything like that. But in the ancient world, a curse was considered a very huge thing. Curses were considered to possess inherent power to carry itself into effect. Fathers were to bless their children and it was believed that that blessing would impact their life. And if they cursed their children, it was believed that that curse would impact their life. In fact, God told the nation of Israel once they got into the promised land that there were blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And one of the first things they were supposed to do is they were to look toward Mount Gerizim and pronounce all of the blessings for obedience and then turn the other direction, look toward Mount Ebal and pronounce all the curses if they disobeyed. After they defeated Jericho, God pronounced a curse on anyone who would try to rebuild Jericho. When Jesus said, whoever does not carry his own cross, he's not using hyperbole here. He's not trying to gain an interest with shocking speech. 
He was saying, if you want to be my disciple, it requires self-denial and dying daily to self, even if that means physical death. I submit to you it's easy in our day and age, in our country, to say, I would follow Jesus to the point of death. That's pretty simple because most of us don't know anybody who's ever been killed for being a Christian. But it's another thing to put that cross on your shoulder and carry it into territory where people hate you and hate God. And you've got the cross over your shoulder and a pocket full of nails. Ready for them to kill you. But that's what Jesus was saying to those people. And that's what he's saying to us. How far will you go? How far will you go? Who will you choose? How far will you go? To those who are unwilling to pay the ultimate price, Jesus again says, cannot be my disciple. Can't. You're not willing to give up everything for me? You can't be my disciple. You're not willing to give up your own life? Your own desires? Can't be my disciple. There are costs and expectations that are required for being a disciple of Jesus. Who will you choose? If you have to choose somebody or Jesus, who do you choose? How far will you go? The third question is, what will I sacrifice? What will I sacrifice? Verses 28 through 33 For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost and see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus gives two illustrations. Describing the need to give up everything. To go all in. To be totally committed to Christ. The first illustration is building a tower. And Jesus puts the the audience members into the illustration. He wants them to make the decision of what they will do. Which one of you? He doesn't use some, which person? Which one of you? You who are listening, which one of you who wants to build a tower doesn't sit down first and calculate the cost to see if you have enough to complete it? The question is worded in such a way that the expected answer to that is no one. No one would start out building a tower if they didn't count the cost first. That that would be foolish. The expectation is a reasonable person does not usually embark on a construction project until they first figured out what it's going to cost to complete the project and see if they have enough to do it. Now, we're not talking about two 10-year-old boys who decide to build a three-room treehouse with the scrap lumber left over from the doghouse. Talking about a reasonable person who says, we're going to build something here, we're going to build a structure here. What's it going to take to build it? First, you sit down and calculate the cost. You crunch the numbers. You make a materials list. What do we need to do this? You find out if there's permits involved and what the cost is. You count the cost of labor. You even have a contingency amount for the unexpected. And you put all the numbers together and you say, yeah, we can do this. Or you say, no, we don't have enough to do this. You count the cost in order to avoid the shame. In a culture where shame was a big deal. 
Otherwise, verse 29, when he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. He wasted money on the foundation. What a waste. I don't know if you've ever seen it. You've driven through some part of, of the state or, and you've seen where they have, a, a builder has graded the lots and put the streets in and put the sidewalks in and then did nothing for long period of time. And you keep scratching your head and go, why, why did they even start? They didn't have the money to do it. Or, what a waste. What a waste. The idea is to avoid shame of starting without finishing. Unfortunately, when it comes to following Christ, there's a number of people that have started and finished in shame. The discipleship hall of shame is filled with portraits of people who started out strong but were unable to finish. And almost all of us know those some of those people. Almost all of us know people who started out claiming to follow Christ, claiming to be a disciple, only for their life to eventually show they didn't have what it took to finish the race. And even in the Scripture itself, we see the portraits in the hall of shame of men like Judas Iscariot, Ananias and Sapphira, Demas, Hymenaeus and Alexander, men whose faith became shipwrecked. Jesus is using the illustration to say that would-be followers must contemplate whether or not they're able to pay the price of being a follower of Christ. It's not a, it's not a journey without price. It costs something. There are expectations. To follow Jesus. It's not enough just to show up. I confess to you that the, the ability and the willingness to pay the price is easier at some times than it is at others. There are times in our lives where the cost just seems too high. And it is only by God's grace that we get through those. The second illustration is that of a king facing a superior army in battle. Verse 31, Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? He has to think, how good are my soldiers? Can I beat the two-to-one odds? Every one of my soldiers has to kill two of theirs without getting killed in order for me to win this. If he believes he'll be defeated, then he tries to negotiate for peace instead of losing. Because to lose the battle is actually worse than surrender because to lose the battle, particularly for the king, means the king's going to become a slave or he's going to be killed. If he negotiates for peace, he may just have to pay taxes to the invading army. The consequences for misjudgment in this case is much more than just being ridiculed for not being able to finish a building. The consequences are life and death. So Jesus compares these two illustrations to total commitment of a disciple in verse 33 says, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus says, You want to be my follower, it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. It may cost you every relationship you have. It may cost you everything you own. It may cost you your life. Now in our day and age, in the land of plenty, we rarely, if ever, see men and women having to give up everything to follow Christ. It does happen, and it happens in other parts of the world. There are still parts of the world where 
People are raised in Muslim families or or Hindu families, and if they receive Christ, they are shunned by everybody in their family. They are treated as if they're dead. And in some cases, family seeks to kill them. I met with brothers and sisters in Myanmar who were beat up, lost their job, their house burned down, they were chased out of town because they confessed Christ. They lost literally everything they had except the clothes that they had on their back. When it comes to being a disciple of Christ, the question is not, what is the minimum I can give? The question is, how much does God deserve? So many Christians operate on a minimum basis. What's the least I can do? What's the least I can give? What's the least I can serve? What's the minimum level of commitment that Jesus expects from me? Well, here it is. The minimum level of commitment that Jesus expects from you is to love Him more than anybody else. To love Him more than anything else. To be, to be willing to give up any relationship, any possession, and even your own life for Him. What are you willing to sacrifice? I think Martin Luther must have been looking at this passage when he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, because he sums it up so well. He wrote, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There's a cost And there are expectations required for disciples of Jesus. This is not religious fiction. This is not the unachievable ideal. Rather, this is the genuine characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not all of us are called to the same sacrifices. We're not all required, let me say it this way, we're not all required to offer the same sacrifices. We are all called to be willing to give the same sacrifice, but it's not all required of us. Not everybody's going to have to forsake their family. Some of you are going to be very blessed and fortunate that God is going to take your whole family on this journey together. Praise the Lord if that happens for you. Some will experience the true nature of what it means to carry their own cross. Others of us will just have to bear the burdens of somebody else. But there are costs and expectations. Every current person who calls himself a disciple of Jesus Christ and every potential disciple of Jesus Christ must ask, answer the questions, who will I choose How far will I go? And what will I sacrifice? After speaking of the cost of being a disciple, Jesus then speaks of the worthlessness of a benign disciple. Verses 34 and 35. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In that day and age, salt was used for two primary purposes. One was as flavoring, and the other was to preserve meats. They would encrust it in salt. That would preserve it for a longer period of time. It would suck the moisture out of the meat, and it would act as a protective covering until they were ready to break the salt off of it and cook it and eat it or slice it and eat it. But in this case, he's using it as a flavoring. Salt's good. If you ever had french fries, you know this is true. 
If you've ever eaten a potato chip without salt, right? Salt's good. If you have high blood pressure, you might not agree with Jesus here, but... But he says, but even if salt has become tasteless, the word there, tasteless, is literally foolish. If salt's become foolish, salt's become tasteless. It's because If the salt no longer has saltiness, what do you use to make salt salty? How do you season salt? We have a chef. Don't answer this now. Tell me later. I mean, they didn't have the cacophony of spices that are available to us today, but you, you got salt. If it's not salty, what is it worth? It's just throwing white powder, white granule. Gran, uh, uh, you know what I'm saying. White little pieces all over your food. It's worthless. And that's what he's saying. If, if the salt has become tasteless, then with what will it be seasoned? You know, salt doesn't taste salty. Let's put some more of it on there. It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. I mean, he's, he's, he's making it pretty clear here. And he's not trying to spare anybody's feelings. He is speaking of the seriousness of being a disciple and said, if you are not the salt that you're supposed to be, you are not worth anything as a disciple. You're not even worth throwing on manure. Jesus is not cutting anybody in that group any slack. He's not trying to soft soap this. He's not trying to spare their feelings. He is trying to tell them the truth. If you are not my, if you don't do this, you are not my disciple. If you are not salty, you're not worth a thing. You may think that's harsh of Jesus. And I imagine there were people in that crowd that thought that was harsh. But it is the difference between life and death. It is the difference between heaven and hell. And Jesus doesn't want anybody who is following Him to walk away thinking, I know who Jesus is, that's enough. I walked with him from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, therefore I'm good. Jesus doesn't want anybody to walk away from there thinking that they're a disciple when all the facts say you're not. And as those who know Christ, we need to be examining our own lives and say, what am I willing to pay? Who will I choose? What will I give up? How far will I go? Am I the salt that He's called me to be? Jesus declared of His followers, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And just like you don't light a lamp and then hide it under a basket because it does no good... If you're not salty, Jesus is saying it does no good. Being a disciple is a serious commitment to Christ. It's not enough just to show up. That is not a Christian. Because that's not a disciple. There are costs. And there are expectations that are required of one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I implore you to examine your life at some point today and make sure that you're a genuine disciple. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that our discipleship is far from perfect. There are days when we seem ready and willing to sacrifice everything for you. And Father, we also confess that there are days 
when we feel we've already sacrificed enough. Father, we pray that we would truly love you more than everything in our lives. That we would love you more than anyone, anything, and self included. Father, help us to live out our faith as disciples of Christ, being the light of the world and the salt of the earth that you called us to be. And Father, if there's anyone here who believes themselves to be a Christian and your Spirit reveals to them they're not, Father, would you please bring them to repentance today, to genuine salvation today. Father, let those of us who who follow you. Let us understand that it's just not enough to just show up. But Father, we must be willing to pay the price. Father, for those who are just in the beginning of their journey with you, I pray that you will encourage them and strengthen them. That Father, your spirit will empower them to make the choices that are necessary. That they'll see the life of a believer to be a life of full commitment. Father, for those of us who have been your followers for a long period of time, Lord, may our commitment to you be renewed day by day. May we be willing to take up our cross every day. Willing to follow you stand for You regardless of those who stand against for Your honor and your, for, for Your glory. Father, help us. Help us to be the disciples that You've called us to be. Knowing that it is the difference between life and death, not only for us, but for those whom we come into contact with. That we might fully, passionately, Proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. May we never forget that we have been entrusted with the words of eternal life. That we are the guardians of the gospel of salvation for a lost and dying world. And Father, we have a responsibility to share that with the world. Thank you that you love us. That you chose people like us. Cracked pottery. Bruised reeds. Yet, Father, you loved us. You sent your Son to die. A cruel death on a wicked cross for us. It is only reasonable that we give our lives back to you as a living sacrifice. Father, may we not operate on a minimum required basis. But Father, may we think about what you deserve from us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.